This is Yudako Hain with Hudson Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I'm happy, I'm grateful to be back in the land of Israel, back home in northern Judea with my family after three weeks in the diaspora. And I just got back from a speaking tour, lots of exciting stuff happening on the road. There's an election for the World Zionist Congress. People might ask, why is there a World Zionist Congress 53 years after the children of Israel returned to Zion? But there is a World Zionist Congress, and we have a party, the Vision Party, that is very interested in identifying the next goals of Jewish liberation and using the resources of the Zionist movement to achieve those goals. So if anybody out there is interested in voting for the World Zionist Congress, I urge you to vote for Slate Number 5, the Vision Party, at ZionistElection.org. This happens roughly every five years. Uh, we did go in last time, and uh, we did succeed in doing some pretty important things inside. This time we want to push a lot of new conversations over what Jewish liberation means in the 21st century, what a Jewish state means, do we sell weapons to human rights abusers, do we behave like uh, colonial power in our own land, you know, being indigenous. Last time around at the World Zionist Congress in 2015, our party passed a resolution very narrowly, but we passed a resolution declaring the Jewish people indigenous to the land of Israel. This was passed by 51%, meaning 47% of delegates at the World Zionist Congress voted against declaring the Jewish people indigenous to the land of Israel. 2% abstained. Um, I think some of the concerns surrounding why people opposed this bill was that it could potentially make expelling Jews from parts of Judea and Samaria legally very problematic. Um, but for us, declaring our indigeneity isn't just about some kind of pro-Israel talking point, saying the Jewish people are indigenous and therefore have this or that right. For us, indigeneity is really an identity that we have to internalize. We have to think about what it means to indigenize back into our country and into our region, to decolonize Jewish identity, and to create an Israel that's really an organic part of the Semitic region and not an outpost of Western civilization. So last time around, we did pass that bill. Since then, uh, we were able to redirect some Zionist funds towards land purchases in Judea and Samaria to resist a two-state solution. We're interested in using the resources of the Zionist movement to resist a two-state solution. But that's defense. And we're even more interested in offense, really identifying what the next objectives of Jewish liberation are and how the resources, and when we say resources, we're talking about billions in annual budget, how the resources of the Zionist movement can be put towards achieving those goals. So any Jew residing in the United States, you have the ability to vote in this election. You vote online. You go to ZionistElection.org. We are slate number five, the vision slate. If you're under 26 years old, you can vote for only $5. That's also because of the Vision Movement, which fought to make sure there would be a discount for student voters because students are obviously not in the same socioeconomic bracket as many adults already established in the workforce. If you are 26 or older, it will cost you $7.50 to vote. If you are under 26, it costs $5 to vote. 
And again, we could really use your help. Slate number five, vision. Uh, please go and vote at ZionistElection.org. Now, it is the 25th of the month of Shvat, and this is the day we generally honor uh, Yair, Avraham Stern, the warrior poet who ignited the struggle for freedom that led to the liberation of our homeland from foreign rule. 78 years ago, on the 25th of Shvat, Yair was shot dead while handcuffed by British detectives in Tel Aviv. Now, Yair was not just another revolutionary. He was the revolution. He was the revolution trapped and embodied within a man whose poetic language of freedom was unintelligible to most of his people. And the British really made a huge mistake when they murdered Yair, because in doing so, they freed the spirit of revolution and allowed it to permeate our people until even Yair's political opponents were picking up arms to drive the empire from our soil. Yair and his followers, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, or in Hebrew, the Lohamei Chayrut Israel, Lechi, were unique in that they were able to think outside the box. They defied the linear political spectrum among the Jewish community in Palestine at the time. They understood the British Empire to be the enemy of the Jewish people, the enemy standing in the way of Hebrew liberation, and they directed all of their energies to freeing Palestine from British rule. Now, I would argue that Lehi and its sternest ideology is one of the only Jewish ideologies from that period, from the pre-state period, that still has major relevance for the Jewish people today. Uh, the problem is, Yair and Lehi have been so vilified by academia, just the way we understand our own history. Uh, often they're very superficially understood as a very violent terrorist group. It's true they did use violence as a tactic against the British. It was an anti-colonial struggle, and obviously these things are messy. But this violence came from a deep, deep, deep principled ideology, meaning at that point in history, they had made a decision that armed struggle was the appropriate method of struggle in their pursuit of freeing the country from British rule. Now, that doesn't mean that violence was their ideology, but violence definitely played into their ideology. But there were many other aspects of their ideology that are relevant to us today, living in a Jewish state with a Jewish army and Jewish security forces, which pretty much handle any of the violent elements of our struggle you know, in this generation. So the violence of Lehi might be less relevant to people today, but the ideas behind the violence might be extremely relevant. And in order for us to be able to engage those ideas, we of course have to transcend the vilification and demonization and there's no better person I know to help us with that than my brilliant wife, Sharona Eshet Kohen, who actually studied um, Messianism and Marxism in Lehi at the academic level. Sharona, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Okay, so Sharona, what would you say are some of the primary delegitimizations of Lehi and of Yair personally in academia today? Uh, academics, um, pretty much all of them, uh, claim that that Yair was at the extreme end of the revisionist movement. They, um, they put him into Jabotinsky's revisionist Zionist camp. 
Sure, yeah, he's considered maybe a breakaway extreme version of it, but yes, coming from the revisionist camp. Right, and that's already a mistake because he wasn't really from the revisionist camp. He might have passed through there. He didn't really even pass through there. I would say that he worked alongside it. He definitely took advantage of it. Well, he was a commander. He was in the high command of the Etzel, the Irgun Svailumi, but not he, when Jabotinsky he, became the... He was at the high command of Etzel before they joined the revisionist movement, before Etzel mm-hmm. joined the revisionist movement. And he movement. opposed joining the revisionist movement as a commander Yeah, he, specifically, yeah. He absolutely did not want to be part of it. He wasn't really from the revisionist camp. Stern was not part of the revisionist movement, and he had a lot of critiques of the revisionist movement, but he definitely he definitely used the movement to achieve his own ends. For example, he worked with Betar in Europe, you know, with the knowledge of, of Jabotinsky, but he used that secretly to recruit people to his movement from Betar. And when Jabotinsky found out, he was very upset. Meaning that Yair was working with the Betar youth movement in specifically places like Poland, Poland. and he was recruiting for Etzel cells. Right. And the Etzel at that time was basically an underground that he was leading in Palestine, which he planned to use against the British Empire. And which was separate from the revisionist movement. Right. right. And the Etzel, the Irgun Svailumi, coming under the command of the revisionist movement and under Jabotinsky is part of what caused the ear to leave the Etzel. Correct. Now, can you take a couple minutes to explain Yair's own political background and political trajectory throughout his life? Sure. So when he was about, when Cyril was about 10, he was living in Russia at the time during the 1917 Russian Revolution. Um, And he was living with a family that was sympathetic to the revolution. At some point, you know, a few years later, he went to live actually with his uncle, uh, who was like a known socialist revolutionary. That's where he got most of his formal education. And in 1920, he actually joined the All-Union Leninist Pioneer Organization, which was a youth faction of the Russian Communist Party. And then... That's like a Leninist youth movement. Correct. That would prepare them to join the Komsomol afterwards, which was the Leninist Young Communist League. And this is uh, around 1920. This is 1920. So that was right before he, he left to go back to Poland. When he went back to his birthplace, he joined Hashomer Tzair. Hashomer Tzair being a left-wing Zionist, at the time socialist Zionist. Right, it was definitely socialist at the time. Uh, Right, it's it's not really clear where his Zionist leanings came from or Mm -hmm. or when, but uh, definitely know that he joined Hashomer Tzair. Well, I imagine it, it makes sense that in the years between the wars in Poland, many Jews would naturally just gravitate towards Jewish nationalism. Right. Just because of experiences and because of circumstances. Right, and at that time he also started like getting uh, tutoring in, in Jewish subjects in Hebrew, mm-hmm. so he's probably, you know, I'm sure that helps. So he's in the Leninist youth movement, he moves back to Poland, he joins Hashomer Tzair, and then at some point he makes Aliyah, he moves to Palestine. Right. Okay. Now when he moves to Palestine, is he politically involved? No, actually, he he starts out at a Hebrew gymnasium, which mm-hmm. is like a high school, um, and he's not he's not really politically involved in any way then. He but it's only that he's just doing a lot of reading about a lot of different political theories and, and subjects. Um, but he's not active until he gets to university. Mm-hmm. And what happens in university? So when he gets to university, he meets uh, David Raziel, mm-hmm. 
who's a very interesting character right. and definitely... David Raziel is a student of Rav Kook and a, and a chavrut of Rav Tziuda, like a study partner of Rav Kook's son, Rav Tziuda, Cohen Cook. Right. So, so David um, likely influenced Stern in a very important way with regards to the way he understood the Jewish people and Torah and redemption and messianism, all coming from Rav Kook's school of thought. Mm-hmm. David Raziel becomes ultimately the commander of the Edsel. Right. Okay, so that is where Yair receives his quote-unquote messianism. Right, so that's that. Um, he also um, so he also starts to get a little politically involved in the beginning of university, where he was invited to join the Bitar at Hebrew University, and he specifically did not join. He's, he was critical of the revisionist movement at the time. Instead, he joined something else called Alal, which was not revisionist. It wasn't until after he finished university and went to Italy sometime in the in the early 1930s, that he he began to get really politically involved. This is for his doctoral work. Right, this is for his doctoral work. Now, it's interesting because what a lot of academics say is that because he was in Italy during Mussolini's rise to power, he was heavily influenced by Mussolini's fascism. Was he? If you look at Stern's poetry during that time, it's definitely much more nationalist. There are definitely hyper-nationalist overtones. With Jewish nationalism. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. He writes also in letters about how, you know, the nationalism of Italy makes him miss Palestine more. So there, there's definitely influences there, but it's not strong enough to call him a fascist by any means. And while he was in Italy, he actually refused to join the fascist student movement. Right, So, which is actually a big deal. He refused to join the fascist movement, despite that students who did got reductions in, in tuition for joining. And the majority of people, you know, the majority of the students where he was studying, did join. It was like a very normal thing to do to join, just to get the, like, even the right, reduction so in tuition. Not joining was a bigger statement than joining would have been. Right, so by not joining the fascist movement in university, he would, that, that's an act of protest. Him not joining the fascist movement in Italy was an act of protest. Right. And this is something that the academics who call him a fascist deal with or don't deal with? So, so Joseph Heller, who is considered one of the foremost authorities on Stern and... Uh, Lechi, he he talks about Stern's time in in Italy, and he tries to use some of Stern's actions as uh, proof that he was really a revisionist and had fascist leanings. But he, despite being the authority on the subject, he doesn't provide sources for most of his claims, and a lot of them, and a lot of the claims, even if he did provide sources, aren't really such good evidence. So, for example, Heller says that. Stern actively supported Jabotinsky's national petition, which called on the British to open the gates of Palestine to all Jews seeking refugee. So obviously Stern would support that, whether it was Jabotinsky or anyone. If Ben-Gurion was putting around a petition for Britain to open its doors to Jewish refugees, I'm sure he would support it too. Do you remember what period this petition was? This was in the 1930s. This was when it, when Yair was in Italy. So early 1930s. Because you would think that the right. later Yair would actually not sign such a petition because he wouldn't recognize Britain's right to open gates or not open gates. Right. This was, this was no, this was... This is when he was still a student. Before, right. Heller also says that he sought recruits for the fascist party, the Jewish fascist party, but he gives no, he cites no evidence for that. And in fact... Dr. Eliezer Matan, who studied at the same university as Stern in Florence and identified as a Marxist, he said that he has no recollection of Stern ever being a member of the movement, let alone actively recruiting other students. The fascist movement. The fascist movement. Right, and he knew him. Yeah, he was, a, he was right. studying there at the same time. And he was a Marxist who was opposed to the fascist movement. Right. Um, he was opposed to fascism. 
Right. He said that Stern sympathized with the revisionist movement to some extent, but that he was never a member of it or recruited for it. Right. So he never joined the revisionist movement. He never joined the fascist movement, yet he was maligned by researchers as being part of both. Right. right. Now, there seems to be a phenomenon of certain figures, especially Jews who came from Europe, who were revolutionary in Europe and are involved with different you know, Marxist political tendencies, come to Palestine and join labor Zionism, feel disillusioned with it, move over to revisionist Zionism because it's just much more masculine or maximalist in terms of its Jewish nationalism. And we're, again, we're talking about the 1930s, essentially. And from there, end up in movements like Lehi, meaning that were clearly rejections of people don't even realize that Jabotinsky, until his death, was against fighting the British Empire that this mm-hmm. was not something Jabotinsky ever advocated for and, in fact, always spoke against. When students of his would agitate for an anti-British front. Right. He felt it was just ridiculous and whatever we achieve, we're going to need to achieve as part of the British Empire in collaboration with the British Empire uh, and never entertained the notion of armed struggle to free our land from the British Empire. Right. So actually, Stern, there's a childhood friend of his talks about how uh, he met with him at some point during, in the 1930s, and Stern was saying to him, you know, you think that Jabotinsky is so great, but I don't personally see any difference between Jabotinsky and Weizmann. They both do nothing. Chaim Weizmann, who is like the head of the World Science right. Organization. So I, so I think you're right in that that, that was a sentiment by, you know, expressed by a lot of people. I mean, that specifically was Stern, but I think a lot of people felt like other uh, streams of Zionism weren't doing anything and they came to Jabotinsky's movement with the hopes that he, they were going to be more active. Almost like a last chance like like before giving up on Zionism let's try this one. Right and then finding that you know it wasn't much better. Right different. and it's interesting that the Sternists for the most part did not self-identify as Zionists like in many instances for example Nathaniel and Moore who became the political leader of Lehi after Stern's assassination was very clear in stating this is not a Zionist organization. Like Weizmann is a Zionist, Jabotinsky is a Zionist, the Haganah is a Zionist organization. We are not Zionists, we are a native people's liberation movement. Right. And also Eliyahu Hakim and Eliyahu Petsuri, uh, two fighters in the Lehi who went to Cairo to assassinate Lord Moyne, who at the time was the highest ranking British official in the Middle East. When they were on trial for the assassination, they were very clear in their rejection of Zionism, but in their support for Jewish liberation and for wanting to see a Jewish state in Palestine. And they presented themselves so well, and it was such passion, that the Muslim Brotherhood student organization at the University of Cairo actually organized demonstrations for their freedom. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying, Sharona, that there is no basis for claiming that Yair was a revisionist. He basically worked in parallel to many revisionists. He used the revisionist movement. He, from the start, had disagreements with it. He was never really enamored with the personality of Zev Jabotinsky in the way that people like Menachem Begin had been. And he was, even when he was involved in revisionist Zionist politics, he was involved in such a way that undermined Jabotinsky. Right, right. Let's speak a little bit about the name Yair, because he wasn't born with this name. He was born Avraham Stern. But... Ultimately, he takes for himself this underground name, Yair. Where does that come from? Right, so he originally started signing his letters, Elazar bin Yair, which eventually got shortened to Yair. So the question is, mm-hmm. right, so what's interesting about Yair taking the name Elazar bin Yair um, is that 
his actual name, Avram Stern. Stern means star. So from my perspective, it would have made a lot of sense for him to adopt the name Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba, like son of the star. Son of the star. He was also a revolutionary Jewish leader who fought the Roman Empire. Right. Like Elazar Venier. Right. And if it was, or if it was just about um, people who were willing to give up their lives for redemption, there are tons of people throughout history, tons of you know Jewish heroes that he could have taken a name from. Right. For those who don't know, Elazar Benyeir was the leader of the Sikari at Masada, who led the famous mass suicide before being taken by the Romans in right. the year 73. Right. So, so there had to be something very unique about Elazar Benyeir over the other freedom fighters throughout history mm-hmm. that would have inspired Yeir to take his name. So when Yeir was learning at Hebrew U, one of his professors was Joseph Klausner, mm-hmm. um, who studied you know, the Zealot movement and the Sikari movement, specifically Masada. And he's actually the one that first spoke about and wrote a book about and probably taught Stern about the society on Masada being the first socialist utopia really in history. Not counting 40 years in the desert uh, once we left Egypt. Not counting that. Right. Um, I mean, that we can say was somewhat communist in structure. Right. I mean, slightly different, you know, miracles, and it, it's right. not quite... Right. So without the, without the miracles, without the man showing up every day, the way that the Sikari organized their society at Masada was according to what we would today call socialist social relations. A socialist way of organizing society. Right. And Stern also probably would have learned from Klausner the struggle against the social injustices before Masada that the, I mean, the class Sikri war. were fighting against. I mean, right. There was actually a class struggle in Judean society between the poor Jews who happened to side with the freedom fighters, of course, and the wealthy Jews, the aristocracy, who were very much dependent on the Roman occupation and were collaborating with the Roman Empire. Right. Which is a pretty common colonial tool to get the ruling class of the colonized country to side with the colonizers. Right. Dependent on the colonizers. Right. For so, their position. so in addition to the, I would say, I guess, nationalist aspects of the name Elazar Ben Yair, there was something else that his name stood for, I think, for Yair, that these other you know, Jewish heroes throughout history, nationalist heroes throughout history, didn't have, which is the fight for, for social justice. Mm-hmm. Right. The class aspect. The class aspect. And this makes sense given Yair's Leninist background in Russia. Right. The way I understand Yair politically, or the way I would understand Sternism, it's almost, we can say, takes the meta-narrative from the teachings of Rav Kook. Not only Rav Kook, but the meta-narrative of the Jewish people throughout history, basically. This idea of this nation that has a purpose in the world, has a purpose in history but was broken and displaced by Roman imperialism and is now coming back to life in Yair's generation. So Yair kind of takes this meta-narrative that's very commonly found in the Rav Kook camp, uh, which he obviously was exposed to by David Raziel, and he takes that alongside his Marxist-Leninist political training. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it was just those two. I think he was influenced by a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. I think he was definitely also influenced by futurism. So one of the one of the problems with all of these ideologies in general of the 20th century is that they all overlap a lot. Mm-hmm. All of the ideologies overlap with each other, and that's why I'm saying it's, it's hard to it's hard to say that Yair was just influenced by Rav Kook and, no, I, and I, Marxism. The, the way I understand Yair is he's somebody who grows up in World War I, Russia, Poland, depending on borders and who he's living with at any given time. You know, the revolution takes place. 
he ends up with a pro-revolution family. He joins the Leninist youth movement. He goes back to Poland. He gets involved in Hashomer Tzir, which on the surface I can see that being like a way to try and bridge, right. you know, revolutionary socialism with Jewish nationalism. Hashomer Tzir at that time, like right after the Russian Revolution, could have been seen as an address for revolutionary Jewish nationalism, what we would call like left-wing Jewish nationalism. Now, he comes to Palestine and he's disillusioned with all the political parties, just wants to focus on his studies, just wants to focus on his academic career. And then he meets David Raziel. And David Raziel is coming from Merkazarov and from the Etzel and essentially introduces Yair to both. And it's when Yair is exposed to this kind of, for lack of a better term, messianic nationalism of Merkazarov and, and Rav Kook, he becomes politically active again. He's now back in the game. He's decided to come back from like his quote-unquote political retirement. And from then until the end of his life, he's really dedicating himself to liberating Palestine from British rule. Except for the fact that uh, he, he seems to have an internal struggle because he also is interested in uh, this young woman, Roni, that he's courting. He's interested in Romance languages. He's interested in getting his PhD in Florence, Italy. Meaning there are all these things that one could argue are competing with his... Right, until ultimately it works out the way it should because those things... Well, Ronnie, he marries, but um, in terms of his academic career, those things anyway... Kept leading him on a trajectory. Led him on a trajectory, but a lot of various factors converged, making it easy for him to choose a life of, of activism mm-hmm. at the end. Okay, and then he becomes part of the Etzel High Command, and like we said, he's going behind the back of Jabotinsky. He opposes Etzel's inclusion in the revisionist movement. He's basically poaching activists from the Beitar movement and bringing them into Etzel with the intention that they're going to be part of some kind of anti-British revolutionary activity. Behind the back of Jabotinsky, behind the back of the Beitar movement and the revisionist movement, and then he officially splits. In World War II, under Jabotinsky's influence, the Edsel decided they would not fight the British while the British were fighting the Nazis. He, of course, defined the British as the Oyev, as the enemy, as the force standing in the way of accomplishing the goals of Jewish history. And therefore, uh, the British had to be fought, and Yair leaves with many followers from the Edsel to start a new revolutionary underground, the Lochamecherut Israel, the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel, or Lehi. And that's essentially the birth of Lehi, when the Etzel is so under Jabotinsky's control that just it doesn't seem any way for them to be able to enter into an anti-colonial struggle. So Heller claims that Stern in the 1930s was a conventional revisionist and had a conventional revisionist ideology. Mm-hmm. But Heller bases the statement solely on Stern's organizational activities, meaning on the things that Stern was doing rather than things he believed. Now, that already, I think, is problematic. It's hard to talk about ideology because when it comes to activities, you have to look at motivations behind it. But he also, in addition to that, doesn't source any of his claims. Um, Heller. Heller does not source, source any of his claims. So, it's, so even if what he's saying is true, it's a problematic conclusion, but it's hard to even accept it as true because he doesn't even give any sources for the facts that he's he just doesn't in his work he just doesn't quote sources in in with regards to this statement no he just Uh doesn't give any sources and you found information and evidence to the contrary so okay he gives three reasons for saying that stern is a revisionist he says he organized a a local revisionist branch in florence when he was studying there in 1934 Mm -hmm. 
doesn't source it. He says that he also sought recruits for the fascist party, and he doesn't source it. And he says he also actively supported Jabotinsky's national petition, which he also doesn't source. Now, in have term- you found your own evidence for any of these claims? Like, not even the petition? No, and in fact, I found, I found counter-evidence. Um, so for the petition, again, I don't think that supporting a petition calling on the British to open the gates of Palestine to all Jews seeking refuge there, even if he did do that, uh, that's an activity that doesn't necessarily mean that he's promoting a revisionist ideology. Mm-hmm. It means that he wanted Jews to be able to come to Palestine. Right, and he signed a petition somebody else was doing. Right. So it, sign somebody else's petition. It doesn't bother me if you know. I don't think that if if that's true, it means anything about you know that that necessarily backs up Heller's claim at all. Although he also doesn't source it, so who knows if it's true? But it's not really what like I'm concerned with. You've never with. seen the petition. I never saw the petition. Well, I never saw the petition, and I also never saw any evidence that says he he was actively supporting it, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two, again, I mentioned before, Dr. Eliezer Matan who was studying at the university in Florence at the same time as Stern and knew Stern and belonged to you know Marxist circles when he was in Palestine. He wrote that Stern was sympathetic to the revisionist movement, but that he, he definitely never recruited for the fascist party. He never recruited for any revisionist branch, and he definitely never organized a local revisionist branch. And he refused to join the fascist right. movement and that spe- and that specifically he actually like refused to to join the fascist party which at that time students received a reduction in tuition mm-hmm. for joining the party meaning that anyone who didn't was making a statement joining the fascist party would not have been a statement mm-hmm. it would have just been going with the right. flow of what everybody was doing right so the early 1930s in italy right so heller says that he was seeking recruits for the fascist party meaning that he obviously you know he's claiming that he joined it too which if true Almost every student joined it. But Heller has no evidence for that. He doesn't cite it. And, and in fact, someone who was studying Western at the time says he specifically didn't join it. Does Heller deal with that? Does Heller talk no, about he never, this? No, he doesn't. No, no. And uh, one other thing that Dr. Matan says is that at the time that they were studying, there was, uh, in 1934, there was a Vienna rebellion against the Austro-Fascist dictator and allied to Mussolini, Engelbert Dolfus. And... Matan actually says that Stern was very clearly on the side of the socialist rebels and not on the side of Dolphus, who was an ally to Mussolini. Really? Yeah. Although Stern, he also said that if it was a matter of Jewish liberation mm-hmm. and siding with Dolphus would help you know, Jews achieve their liberation, he would side with Dolphus. You're saying that Yair didn't feel himself to be politically beholden to the left or right of other people's political spectrums, he was just to the looking. extent to the extent that it it would help him. But if it had nothing to do with you know Jewish liberation, mm-hmm. all, you know all things being equal, he sided with the socialist rebels. Okay, so you're saying when it comes to the international context, he leaned left, but was primarily concerned with Jewish liberation, right? And would even sacrifice his leftist leanings for the sake of Jewish liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's according to, you know, Dr. Matan. Okay. But who was with him in the Who was with him and, and, you know, yeah. And Heller was not. And Heller was not. Nor, nor does Heller cite any sources <laughs> to back up his claims about Yair at that time in Italy. Right. It's pretty outrageous. He does another thing, too. So he talks about the dis- disagreements between Stern and Cayley when they're creating the, the principles of rebirth. Mm-hmm. And Cayley wanted what Heller termed to be a fascist authoritarian model. He wanted... 
the Hebrew state to be a strong regional power, and he wanted a strong centralized national government that would see to the nation's conquests, and he wanted to specifically include anti-leftist revisionist heritage in the principles by attacking groups that deny the nation's destiny of... Okay, whatever. He wanted to include anti-leftist revisionist heritage. Kaylee. Kaylee. Kaylee wanted to bring some of the revisionist Zionist ideology into Lehi. Right. This is what Heller says. Heller says that Kaylee wanted to introduce anti-leftist revisionist heritage in the principles Mm -hmm. by attacking groups, by calling for an end to class struggle. But Stern refused to include any of that in the principles of rebirth. And Heller's reasoning for that is that Stern wanted to be different from the revisionists. He wanted other people to see that he was different from the revisionists, even though he, he really agreed with it. So... Which is crazy. No. That's a, that's an outrageous assumption to make. Go on. He, he's pulling that out of nowhere. Right. Meaning he's just saying, <laughs> I think it is a fascist. I think it is. And therefore, any proof that I see to the contrary, I'll like find a way to fit it in. Cern was just saying that, you know, to be to be mm-hmm. contrary, but he really didn't mean it. Right. But he specifically, Kaylee was very, was very clear. He wanted to include uh, an attack against groups that called for an end to class struggle, and Stern flat out refused to include that. Uh-huh. And Heller just takes that to be meaningless. Yeah, correct. Okay. So Heller Heller seems to have a, an agenda in painting the ear a certain way, but it's not just Heller. It seems like Israeli society has painted the ear this way. Like on a very superficial level, in on the Israeli political spectrum, and again, the Israeli political spectrum is very different from political spectrums elsewhere, we're kind of shown that the Haganah was the Zionist left and the Etzel is the Zionist right aligned to the revisionist party. And then the Lehi was something more to the right. Right. But where, in fact, it would make more sense to say Lehi was actually a revolutionary left. Lehi was actually like an expression of left-wing Jewish nationalism that was very class-conscious and fought according to the principles and the analysis of historical materialism, meaning even Mm -hmm. in terms of identifying British material interests in the region and striking at those interests to make the price of occupation more expensive and the benefits of exploitation. I mean, that's after your year's death already, but that was Yellen Moore, who we know for sure is considered to be on the left, especially after the state was established. But the the Lehi essentially did function like a left-wing urban guerrilla group within the context of our struggle against the British. Mm-hmm. Can we go a little deeper into your year's influence from from Rav Cook. What really changed in Yair's life when he's introduced to those ideas? Right. He did stay with uh, Rav Avram Shapira for some time. He lived with him for some time in Gula. Who, who much later became the Rosh Hashiva of Merkazar and the chief rabbi of Israel. Right. They were roommates. He, Raziel and Stern were living at Rav Shapira's mother's house in uh-huh. Gula. This is um, in the late 1930s. Correct. Mid to late 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, when they were in the high command of the It's unclear exactly when, but yeah, it's when they were, they were running the Yitzhak. Stern grew up completely secular, maybe even, you know, to some extent anti-religious, you could say. But as his life progressed, he became more and more attached to, I would say, the the ritual aspects of Torah living. Like wrapping tefillin every morning. Wrapping tefillin. You know, at one point he went on a trip to Warsaw and there Mm -hmm. were no kosher restaurants. So he wrote in a letter to his wife that he just didn't eat for two days. Mm And this is not somebody who grew up keeping kosher. Correct, no. And and I'm not even sure he did keep kosher. Right. I, I don't know. But it seemed like he was you know, on but, some kind of trajectory. It seemed like right. he was coming closer to so, his own identity and to his own practices. Right, so he says that it's that the Jewish people doesn't have a religion like all other religions, that the faith in or the emunah in 
in God having this hand in, in everything is the foundation. It's the core of what it means to be a Jew. Mm-hmm. Meaning that it's not about, it's not like about uh, religious practice. It's about like, that's what it is to be a Jew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's, that idea spoke to, to Stern a lot and adopting these ritual practice i think it was as a way to connect to the jewish nationhood right to his national identity right like this is what jews do Mm -hmm. um right in a very nationalist sense correct i think Mm -hmm. it's hard to know but it seems that he was on a trajectory he was studying the tanakh and he was uh not just the tanakh he was studying um when he was in prison he was learning the gemara on uh, yom kippur about Mm -hmm. yoma yoma right about what the high priest would do on, on yom kippur and uh the rabbi he learned with said that Yair's eyes lit up when he learned when he was learning this stuff mm-hmm. um, about you know his own ancient culture and his own, what his people used to do. So we had a soul that was very connected to these things, but just Definitely. didn't have a chance to have that education growing up. Right. Right. So he was on a what we would say, for lack of a better term, chuva process. There was a chuva yeah. process taking place in his life, and he already came with, with the Marxist political background, so he's able to analyze political events and political forces. Uh, and social relations a certain way. And he was able to come to certain conclusions based on the analysis he had been trained with, but now he has this ideology that he's kind of getting from his relationship with David Raziel and, and all these other people. The way I would understand Sternism is really the tools of historical materialism being applied to the Jewish national struggle. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. Sharona Eshit Kohen, this is the second time you've been on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. I Thank know you. it's... Uh, I know you have a lot going on, and I appreciate you taking the time to help shed some light on the personality of Yair in honor of his 78th year site, his Yom Petira, 78 years after he was killed by the British regime, by British detectives, just shooting him in cold blood. But uh, really, his legacy lives on, and I think there are a lot of areas today where we can apply that ideology in order to be able to advance Jewish history forward. Again, I want to ask everybody out there who's eligible to vote, to vote in the World Zionist Congress elections. Go to zionistelection.org and vote for Vision, the Vision slate. It's slate number five. Go out and vote. You don't have to go out and vote. Just pick up your phone. Vote on your phone and let us know. Actually, you can contact us at the Vision Magazine at visionmag.org. You can contact us and let us know that you voted and we'll give you a special shout out on the show or, or maybe we'll even bring you on the show to tell everybody why you voted. Sharona, thanks for being with me. Thank you, and Everyone can hear the show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage 21.